Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Sam Mullins. Sam, I'm sensing a lot of skepticism from you. What is it that you're so afraid of? Of being racist. <laughs> that and more. But before that, hey, you won't believe what I'm about to talk about unless you believe that what I'm about to talk about is stamps.com. Listen, quick easy to use, convenient. Those are the adjectives I'd use to describe stamps.com. It's going to make your mailing and shipping a breeze. With stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage. Using your computer and printer, there's nothing to learn. Stamps.com will give you a digital scale. It automatically calculates exact postage for any letter, any package, and they'll help you choose the best class of mail. Listen, bucko, you're going to get your mail there on time for the least amount of money, and then you just drop it in the mailbox. The mailman can take it. You're never going to have to go to the post office and wait in line again. Listen, mailing and shipping has never been easier. We use Stamps.com. At Risk and the Story Studio, we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code, R-I-S-K, for the special offer. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So, don't wait! Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Marvelry Skimmer behind me now. Oh, Marvelry. What have I done to deserve you? <laughs> All right, chicklets. Listen, today's episode is called uh, Make It Stop. That's right. Although I'm having a hard time making it start, apparently. I, you know what? This is the very first episode, I think, that I've ever done the hosting segments completely nude. I'm not wearing a stitch of... Now you're thinking, okay, make it stop. But I won't, motherfucker. As you're whatever, jogging around the track or doing the dishes or whatnot, you've got to just sit there and deal with it. That these hosting segments are done by a chubby man covered in red fur with a penis that, when it's not erect, is so, so minuscule. Or as my husband used to say, minsecule. <laughs> again, again, make me stop, right? The Risk fans that are always writing in to complain that I don't sound like I'm an NPR sort of host that's just been raised from the dead and is considering whether or not to go back into the tomb after having a little chamomile tea are going to be 
outraged with this particular hosting segment. Kids, we're going to start with someone who really shone on the show the first time he was on. This is Sam Mullins. You can find him at sammullins.com. Here he is at our last Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call The White Man for the Job. So I'm in my final semester of my final year at the University of Victoria in the acting program, and I'm nervously pacing back and forth in a hallway, about to go into my audition for the worst play of all time. Do you guys remember that Julie Taymor production of Spider-Man the musical that was universally panned and lost millions of dollars? Well, this play would make that look like the importance of being earnest, which, which is delightful if you've never seen it. Um, this play that I was auditioning for had been written 15 years earlier by a Quebec City novelist, and upon reading it for the first time, I quickly understood why it had never seen the light of day, had never been produced, had never even been workshopped. It was bad in an obvious kind of way. The play was called Lionel. And Lionel was the story of a little person named Lionel who was an incredible singer. And it takes place in 1920s America. So Lionel starts busking with his African-American friend Sunshine who accompanies his singing with the violin. And uh, then one day an evil carny comes to town and sees them perform. And he thinks, little person, big voice, I can exploit that. So, so they join the circus, they run away, and Lionel becomes a superstar. And as Lionel's fame gets bigger and bigger, Lionel literally gets bigger and bigger. He grows into a regular-sized man, and then he keeps growing until he's a giant. And everyone thinks it's a miracle. But then Lionel's diagnosed with a rare form of gigantism, which is fatal. So... His health and his ego take a turn for the worst. His life falls apart. Sunshine the Fiddler turns into an alcoholic. Everyone loses their fortune and dies, and then the play ends. (laughs) What an insightful comment on the nature of celebrity. (laughs) Or something, I think. So... The master's director at our school, he finds this play in an archive somewhere and he reads it and he thinks to himself, wow, what a great opportunity for me, the master's director, to have to solve the problem of making an actor literally grow on stage. And I have at my disposal an army of student actors and designers to make this magic happen. I like my chances. So at this point in time, I'm a fourth year actor, which means that I am obligated to be in the show, so when I read it the first time, I'm looking for a role that I can see myself playing, and, and I find one. Jake, the bodyguard, you know? Uh, he wears suits, and he catcalls women, and he offers comic relief. He has a Boston dialect, and he says things like, hey, knock that shit off, and I think to myself, I can play Jake, because I'm always, always, always cast as one of the good guys, and I thought it might be fun for me to play a bad guy and go against my type. Remember that. So I go into the audition and I tell the director I want to play Jake the bodyguard and I read some sides from the script and he tells me that I have the role and I'm ecstatic. That never happens, mostly because I'm a bad actor. So um, a few weeks later, the playwright flies in from Quebec City for a table read with the full cast and when this guy walks into the room, he looks really nervous and confused and on edge. And I think it's because he was certain that he had destroyed every copy of this train wreck 15 years earlier. So the table read goes horribly um, because the script is bad. And all of us walk away from it feeling really bad about ourselves. And I think, was I cast in this or was I trapped in this? And I'm really upset about it. But then I think, oh, well, you know, I'm Jake the bodyguard. I'm going to get a few laughs on stage. I'm going to have some fun backstage. This is going to be totally fine. 
Then one night, my phone rings at midnight, and it's the director. He says, hey, Sam, I'm so sorry to call you so late at night. I'm like, no, no, don't worry about what's, uh, what's going on. Well, Sam, that table read didn't go very well. Um, I think the actor playing Sunshine, the African-American fiddler, I think he might not be able to handle the role. Sidebar. The character of Sunshine, the violin player, is a black man. The problem facing this production of Lionel is that there are no black men in the city of Victoria to play him. Because Victoria's a world that makes a Norman Rockwell painting look like a New York City subway car. And it was a problem, it was a problem that they knew going into production. They're like, we don't have any black actors. So they talked about maybe uh, paying a professional to fly in and play the role, but then they deemed that to be too expensive. So they did what they decided was the next best thing. They gave the role to my friend Scott. But Scott is not of African descent, though. Scott is of Bangladeshi descent, which is equal parts, not black and not white. But I guess it's the best that they could do. And, and while Scott would grow over his university training to become a fabulous actor. At this point in time, he was just in his first year of training and perhaps didn't yet possess the chops that he needed to play this major role in the shitty script. So, <laughs> Sam, I'm calling because I want you to play Sunshine. What? I think you're actor enough to handle the role. You should say something. Um... Sunshine is black. Yes, he is. I'm not black, but you are a great actor. <laughs> You're a versatile actor. Sidebar, I couldn't understand why he thought that I was a versatile actor because the last three roles I played on the main stage at school are as follows. I played an upper-class Texan lawyer in Moliere's Tartuffe, an elderly, blind, Polish-Jewish basket weaver in a play called Crackpot, and the semester before, I just played a lower-class Cockney talking horse in Wind in the Willows. <laughs> but, but this vast array of roles, however, is more to do with the fact that directors never really knew where to put me, and less to do with me being a young Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> It'd be a great challenge for you, Sam. What do you say? I, I can't play sunshine. I think you can. How? Oh, you know, with, with a little dialect work, costume, makeup. Wait, 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 wait. Makeup? Like, like makeup? Yes, Sam, makeup. Okay, but, but when you say makeup, I'm concerned that you mean makeup. Oh, wait, wait, you think we're gonna put you in blackface? Oh, goodness, no, 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 no. What we're aiming for is to sort of tip our hats to blackface. <laughs> but there will be black on my face. Yes, your face will be entirely black. I'm not putting on blackface. Sam, I'm sensing a lot of skepticism from you. What is it that you're so afraid of? Of being racist. <laughs> okay, Sam, I'm gonna level with you, okay? I need you to play this role. You are the only actor with the integrity that I need to pull this off, okay? You would be doing me a favor. This show needs you, okay? Let me know tomorrow. So, the next morning, I wake up and I think, no, <laughs> there's no way I'm doing this. So, then I proceeded to do what I'd done every Sunday morning over the course of my university days. I turned on Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton. And the guest that week was Forrest Whitaker, of all people. And in his interview, he told the story how during his university training, he was once confronted with a role that was a huge challenge and far outside himself. And he was reluctant to take it, but then he thought, this is his training, you know? This is where he's free to fall on his face. So he took the role, he 
earned much acclaim, he grew as an actor, and now he has a goddamn Oscar. But I, of course, now see in retrospect how ironic it is that Forrest Whitaker is the one that made me change my mind because if he saw our production of Lionel, no one in the world would have been more outraged than Forrest <laughs> Whitaker. So I take the role and over the course of the next six weeks, I really put in the work, you know? I, I mine the script, I do my research, I build a character. And I even had a dialect coach come in to help me with my southern 1920s Louisiana dialect. And it came out sounding like Eddie Murphy as Donkey in the Shrek movies. <laughs> and in the morning, I'm making waffles. But, but the worst was when in the final week of rehearsal, the, the, the costume designer comes in and puts me in a large purple bow tie and colors in my entire face black. Like, if the LA Clippers owner Don Sterling saw the show, he would have been like, that's pretty racist, you guys. You should probably shut this down immediately. But... I was still a teenager and I had all these professors and acting coaches reassuring me that I was doing a great job and I had nothing to worry about. <laughs> and then, before we knew it, it was opening night and there were 200 people there, many of whom were there to review the show. I was backstage putting on my makeup and I, of course, ended up sharing a dressing room with a guy who would play Jake the bodyguard. I just remember seething with resentment as I look over at him adjusting his awesome fedora. I was supposed to be Jake the bodyguard. And the stage manager calls us to places. On my way to my spot for the top of the show, I catch a view of myself in a full-length mirror. And I vividly recall saying out loud to myself, I'm going to be on the fucking news for this. <laughs> And out we went. <laughs> and we did the best that we could do with what we had. And it went badly. <laughs> because it was a bad show. A couple days later, the reviews came out. And then went a little something like this. Worst play ever. Why would anyone do this play? Unbearably awful. Poorly directed, felt bad for the cast. Oh yeah, and there was a guy in blackface who acted poorly. And we still had three weeks of run left to do. Thank you. been an educator in the kink, sexuality, and BDSM worlds for about seven or eight years now. And I got my start because I was a super kinky and sexually precocious kid. I really, really enjoyed doing mean things to my cock and balls. When other boys were sort of like, I'm gonna masturbate for eight hours. I was like, huh, I'd be really wonderful what it'd be like to masturbate while shoving a safety pin through my cock. Which I only much later learned is not part of the normal trajectory of boyhood. When I was 16, I had an incident. I had gotten into enema play and thought that was a ton of fun. I thought it'd be really neat to do a fizzy enema and uh, couldn't figure out a way to make it really work with seltzer. So I had thought like, oh, I'll use hydrogen peroxide because it fizzes. 
which is how I ended up shitting blood for a week and having to explain to my mother, who was ready to take me to like a specialist in hemorrhagic illnesses, that actually I knew exactly why I was shitting blood and it was entirely my fault. And that just set a pattern for my life. It's also part of why my mother was not super shocked when I became a BDSM educator instead of a rabbi. I met Lee Harrington, who'd done a couple of stories for Risk, at a pagan event. He knew that I was super kinky in the bedroom with my two partners, and he said, oh, you should come teach at Dark Odyssey. They would really like more spirituality programming and you're kink friendly. So I went to my first Dark Odyssey. I kind of bombed, but I had an amazing time, and I came away saying, I have to get good at this because I want to come back. I spent some time and I worked up a bunch of different classes that were really kinky and spiritual and some that were just kink, and I focused on the things that I was good at. So the next year I came back and I did this really awesome class on cock and ball torture. And I covered all sorts of crazy shit, like using needles on your cock, or urethral sounding, which is taking a metal rod and shoving it into someone's pee hole, and a violet wand, which is this thing that shoots sparks at you. And I did all these really cool things, and it was really awesome, and they wanted me to come back the next year and do it, but I used my husband as a demo bottom the year before, and he couldn't get off work. And I was too new and too insecure to just find a stranger who's gonna let me do all these terrible things to them. So I thought, what the hell? I do a lot of this stuff for fun. I'm a switch, I like to do things to people, and I like things done to me. So I pitched them CBT for One, an entirely self-demoed cock and ball torture class. And I covered much of the same material. And among the things, in addition to needles and sounds and surgical stapling, and I did all this to my dick in front of an audience in 90 minutes, one of the things I covered is topical chemical play, which is all irritants and stimulants that you can buy at your local pharmacies. So I covered Vicks Vapor Rub and Tiger Bomb and topical benzocaine for numbing. I did all this stuff to myself, and uh, people had a good time. I don't know if they learned anything, but it certainly was a show they enjoyed watching. And at the end of the class, this older gentleman comes up to me and says, So, those things are all well and good but have you tried capsaicin cream? And I had not heard of it before. And in retrospect, to this day, I do not know if this guy was trolling me or actually just thought, hey, this is a cool idea this guy hasn't tried. If you've listened to Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, you know that especially at this period in time, there were very few men who play with men, and I primarily identify as a gay man. So I did not get laid at this event. I didn't even get to jerk off because I was sharing a hotel room with someone I was not in a relationship with. I got home and I was super tense. I'd had a great experience, but I was very horny. And I really want to do some intense play. So I went out to the pharmacy and I bought capsaicin cream. Now, when I teach my classes, I have a whole thing about how to do this right. And one of the rules are, when you have a stimulant or an irritant with someone who's never played with it before, you test a sample someplace sensitive, but that's not super sensitive, and that won't be embarrassing if you have to go to the emergency room. So, the inside of your wrist is good, the inside of your thigh, an underarm, these are all great places. I did none of that, because I was really horny and really thought like, oh, I'm hardcore, I don't need to do that shit, I teach this stuff. Which is how I found myself sitting in front of my computer in my home office, I had a towel down the chair, I laid everything out, I had some lube, I had taken the capsaicin cream out of its box and, and pierced the protective seal, I was all set to go. So I bring some gay porn up on my computer, and I take the capsaicin cream, take a dollop of it, and I put it right on my frame which people don't know is the band of tissue that connects the head of the penis to the inner foreskin and is the most sensitive spot in the male body. So I start jerking off and it's a letdown. I mean, anytime you're jerking off after several days of not, it's gonna be kinda good. But the capsaicin cream is doing nothing for me. I'm like, oh, great, it's kinda warm. Yay. So uh, I just put more on. 
because that seemed like the best solution at the time. I was clearly not, let's say, thinking with the head on my shoulders. So uh, I'm jerking off with the cream on there, and it finally starts to warm up. So I'm like, oh, alright, I can kind of see it, like it's starting to get warm, it's a little sensual and tingly, and that's nice. It's not what I wanted, I wanted like something that hurt while I was feeling good, but I can live with this. Okay, I'm continuing to jerk off, and it starts to hurt a little. And I'm like, oh, finally, getting a little bit of pain, like that was the fucking point. Like, I was ready to go grab my Tiger Bomb and use something else, but I didn't want to get up with a heart on. So I'm getting into it, it's getting a little more intense, and it's getting a little more intense, and it's getting a little more intense. And now we've passed like the threshold where Tiger Bomb would sort of bottom out. And with most of these stimulants, like they plateau. You know, there's a build up and they plateau. It usually takes like 20 seconds. We're like four minutes in. And then it's starting to get really intense. And I start to notice that I'm not so much paying attention to the porn anymore because, ow. My cock was on fire, and not in a sexy way, but more in a blowtorch sort of way. A few moments later, my husband found me in the shower in our bathroom, just spraying it with ice water, trying to numb the pain, while I'm just like, ah, punch the wall, ah, punch the wall. And my husband's really concerned at first, what's going on? And I said, the capsaicin's really intense, and he just starts fucking losing it laughing hysterically. So, I'm trying to think of what I can do, and I say to him, we have some yogurt in the fridge. Because I knew that, like, yogurt and milk products, like, that's what you do when you eat something really hot. Like, reality television taught me that lesson. And he brings back the only yogurt in the house, which is a pint of Stonyfield Farms whole milk French vanilla. Little plug for Stonyfield Farms there. And it is half-eaten. I sort of rest my scrotum on the lip of the container, push my cock out a bit, and just start basting it in yogurt. You know, it's like I'm trying to make tandoori out of my dick, which is appropriate because my dick is now bright fucking red. So I just start this cycle, like, yogurt, 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 ice water, ice water, ice water, yogurt, 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 ice water, ice water, ice water. I'm just going back and forth and back and forth, and it's not getting any better. Like, I kept waiting, like, I'll get over the hump, and the hump's not coming, and I can only, like, yogurt, 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 ice water, ice water, ice water for so long because A, the yogurt's getting diluted by the ice water, and B, I'm starting to shake and shiver because I'm fucking freezing, and the pain is still there. I say to my husband, I say, so, there was a whole pamphlet with the capsaicin, and I assume it says what to do if there's a problem. Go find it. And he goes, okay, where is it? And I had come in from the pharmacy and I just made a beeline to my computer because I was going to come right now. And along the way, I had taken it out of its packaging and I did not know where. So I was like, just go start emptying trash cans. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not rooting through the trash. And I was like, this is one of those marriage moments where I need you to come through for me. So... I just sit and I'm doing my, like, yogurt, 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 ice water, ice water, ice water, yogurt, 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 for several minutes while he searches every trash can in the house. And, of course, it's in the bathroom trash can, which is not where he started. So he gets out the pamphlet and, with the biggest shit-eating grin imaginable, says, Oh, it's no problem. It says that the sensations last for about two hours. And we're maybe 20 minutes into this saga. So I say, like, there has to be something. There has to be something. Like, there's got to be a, if adverse reaction occurs, even if it's call 911, I just need to know what it is. So he looks and he goes, oh, dish soap. Which is how, a few moments later, my ice water yogurt cycle was expanded to include furiously jacking off with bright blue Dawn dish detergent. And that was another, like, 10 to 15 minutes before I started getting to where I could pause between cycles. And I'm freezing cold. My cock is swollen like a microwave hot dog, 
And my husband, who has been struggling this entire time not to pass out from lack of oxygen, because he cannot stop laughing, just looks at me with a perfect straight face and says, uh, you want some privacy so you can finish jacking off now? I don't know if you know this, but, uh, the glands and inner foreskin of the penis are mucosal tissue, and mucosal tissue and Dawn dish detergent are, let's say, not besties. So there was some chafing and some dryness. My dick was very like, I'm out, bitch. And it was a good couple of days before I could even touch it without, like, serious discomfort. It is one of those stories that is very instructive when I teach, like, oh, us instructors can fuck up. But it also taught me this really hard lesson. Because when people come into the kink world, you come in as a newbie. You know, like, oh, I've read Fifty Shades of Grey. You know that you don't know anything. So you're really receptive when people are like, this is how you do this thing. Then you go into this period where you're like, fuck, I know shit. And you start thinking that you're infallible, especially if you're also an instructor at a high-profile kink event that people are really digging. You can't ever lose sight of the fact that you two are human and you can fuck up. And that those rules, those exist through long and hard suffering by a lot of people. And I still do chemical play, and I still, every new substance, I test it on myself, and every time I teach chemical play, I tell a little mini version of this story so that other people who are going through that little adolescent phase don't think, oh, I can discard what he says and just do whatever I want. Because down that road lies swelling and chafing and a husband who cannot stop laughing at you for years to come. heard from my very dear friend Winter Tashlin that story there. You can find Winter at BarkingShaman.com and in that story you just heard he mentions DarkOdyssey.com That's where you can find that kink camp he mentions in that story. The same kink camp that you first heard in the episode of Risk called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. You know, he also pointed out in that story that back then, back when I did record Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, there weren't many men that play with men that were going to that camp. But that episode actually encouraged a lot of men who play with men to start coming. So now it's kind of everyone who plays with anyone or whoever they want to play with at that camp. Anyway, I teach classes there now, too. The most popular one is one I teach called um, Everything You Can Do to an Ass other than fuck it. And I, the last time I was at camp, I was walking away from having taught that class with Winter, and I said, oh my gosh, sometimes people raise their hand, and I realize, oh God, I'm not as much of an expert at this as I thought. And that's when he shared with me his capsaicin story. And I said, oh my God, we have got to put that on the podcast. But the last thing we're going to put on the podcast for this episode is the wonderfully talented Anne Thomas. Anne told this story at our D.C. show, our last show down in Washington, D.C. 
So without further ado, here she is now. This is Ann Thomas with a story we call The Bubbler. I'm 18 years old. I'm visiting my sister Marilyn in California. It has been uh, six months since a devastating car accident left me paralyzed from the chest down. And I want to go back to school. So I hear University of California Berkeley has a really good wheelchair accessible campus and I'm out there checking it out. Well, Marilyn heard about a therapeutic pool program near her home. And I haven't been in a pool since the accident so we decided to check that out too. Well, as they're lowering me into the pool in a sling, I realize there's someone else in the pool. And in the corner, it's a young man, early 20s, and I can only see the top half of his head because his mouth is submerged and he's blowing bubbles. (laughs) And then I notice he has a large dent in his forehead. And it's it's unnerving to look upon this and Mrs. Todd the pool instructor notices my gaze and she says oh that's just Brian he was in a motorcycle accident wasn't wearing a helmet and when his bike went down his head hit the curb his brain injury makes it kind of hard for him to move his limbs and impacts his speech a little bit so he just likes to hang out in the pool and blow bubbles well I'm freaked out about this whole disability thing his mine I'm only 18 years old, and I'm a college athlete. I am all about my body. When I was a kid, I climbed trees, I did judo, I did gymnastics, I loved doing a back layout on the trampoline. In high school, I played field hockey, volleyball, and track. I even threw the shot put for the men's indoor track team. In summer, I would go swimming, body surfing, play tennis, and for fun, I'd go horseback riding and take classes in tap dancing and belly dancing. And you know my father loved the belly dancing. <laughs> and socially, I, I expressed myself physically. I, I would leap into rooms. I would do random cartwheels on the sidewalk. And I would scale the outside of my brother's dorm to bypass security so he would not know when I was coming. <laughs> So I am now in this wheelchair and I am grieving who I was and I do not want to be who I am now. I mean, this is 1976. So, you know, there are laws on the books that prevent kids from disabilities to going to public schools. There are states that still sterilize people with disabilities against their will. Yes. And there are architectural barriers everywhere. Plus, people no longer acknowledge me. They talk to the person I'm with What's wrong with her? What does she want to eat? You have to move her. Like I am not even there and man, that pisses me off. But that gives me the juice to work hard to prove I am worthy of respect. So a couple days after the pool, I get a phone call from Mrs. Todd, the pool instructor, and she says, Anne, I would really like to give Brian your phone number. And I'm thinking, oh man, I do not want her to give Brian my phone number. His disability freaks me out, just like mine does. And she says, you know, he's really having a hard time. He feels so isolated and alone with his injury. And I'm like, well, I can sympathize with that. And she said, and you, you've got such a great attitude. If you would just spend time with him, just be his friend, you could really make a difference in his life. Well, you know, how do I say no to that, right? I mean, she thinks I can help him, and I will feel guilty if I don't try and help him. So I say, okay, you can give Brian my phone number. And in truth, I want to be a good person. I mean, I want to be kinder to him than others have been to me. And besides, just because he has a disability, you know, some physical problem, doesn't mean he's not a great person inside, like me. (laughs) So Brian calls. Want to go to a movie on Friday? 
And I'm thinking, oh, Friday's a date night. Oh, I don't hope he doesn't think it's a date, but she said, just spend time with him, it'll help him. So I say, yeah, sure. Well, Friday comes, there's a knock at the door, we answer the door, and hunk a hunk of burning love, there is the most gorgeous young man I have ever seen. He's like early 20s, he's got sandy blonde hair, he's like six foot two, and he's built. And he says, hi. I'm Brian's brother, and I'm driving you to the movies. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, baby. This night is looking better already. So we go out to the car. I get in the front seat next to Brian, and his brother says, we're going to the drive-in, so we don't need to bring your wheelchair. And I'm thinking, I'm not real comfortable not bringing my wheelchair. I mean, what if I have to go to the bathroom? What if something happens? But, you know, I've been very clued into the fact that most people view people with disabilities as a pain in the ass, so I don't say anything. And sure enough, on the way to the drive-in, we get a flat tire. So, Brian and I wait in the front of the car while his brother jacks up the rear, which I know is dangerous, but what am I gonna do? So we get to the drive-in, double feature, we miss almost the whole of the first movie, which, thank God, because the movie they picked for me to see is Other Side of the Mountain. <laughs> Which for those of you who don't know is the tragic true tale of an Olympic skier who has a terrible skiing accident and winds up paralyzed. <laughs> but gains the love of a wonderful man. Now, I really, the last thing I wanna do is watch another woman going through what I'm going through. <laughs> And I really don't want the specter of romance introduced into this outing with Brian. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, the second movie uh, has another fine title, Walking Tall Part Two. <laughs> I'm in Rolling Short Part One. <laughs> so as soon as we park the car, Brian's hot brother jumps out. Because unbeknownst to me, his girlfriend has been following us this whole time in her car, leaving me alone, wedged between Brian and the door. And it's not long before Brian makes his move. Slowly, excruciatingly slowly. <laughs> Brian lifts his arm up, over, and across my shoulders. And I'm just watching him. And I, I feel like I'm in the dentist seat, you know? And the drill is coming right at me. And you know, you don't want to be there, but you really don't have any choice. Before, I might have like danced away from an unwanted advance, but I, I can't do that now. And then it hits me how perfectly Brian and his brother maneuvered me into being alone, squeezed up right next to Brian. And that pisses me off, but then I think, well, you know, maybe before his accident, Brian was hot like his brother. You know, a chick magnet and a leather jacket and tight jeans striding a Harley with women dying for this kind of attention. So once he's got his arms settled in place, Brian starts asking me questions. What's wrong with you? Were you driving? Was it your fault? How long ago? How tall are you? and on and on, and I, you know, at first I'm polite, I answer his questions, but then I get exasperated, and I'm like, enough with the questions! And then my legs start jumping up and down, and Brian says, quit moving your legs. And I'm like, well, Brian, this is what we call a spasm, and uh, I'm paralyzed, and uh, I really, I can't, I can't do anything about it. My legs keep jumping. And Brian says, I said cut it out! And I'm like, I would if I could, but I can't! And then Brian says, well, I told that doctor I wasn't gonna take that dilantium no more. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> Anti-seizure medication. When did you stop taking it? <laughs> Two weeks ago. Great, I'm at the drive-in. He's gonna have a seizure any minute. And what am I gonna do? Open the door, fall on the ground, wave my arms around. Like anyone's gonna see me at the drive-in. I mean, I'm sure his brother's having sex right now. So then Brian bends forward and sticks his hands in between my legs below my knees and starts moving his hand around. And I'm like, 
what is he doing? It's too dark, I can't see, and I can't feel. I know it's inappropriate, I just don't know how inappropriate. <laughs> and then finally, he pulls out a plastic urinal. And then he puts that plastic urinal by his groin and he takes the lid off and he unzips his pants and he pulls his penis out and he sticks it in the urinal and then he relieves himself. And then he puts the cap back on and zips himself back up and then he places the full urinal down by my legs. <laughs> my spastic legs. <laughs> and I'm like, ew! How can this be going on? I mean, I don't know if he's so rude and inappropriate because of his disability or what, but I can't cope with this. Maybe a bigger person could, but I just want this night to end. And then Brian says, can I ask you one more question? I'm like, okay, just one more question. And he says, can I kiss you? No. no. <laughs> Why not? That's two. <laughs> well, I didn't get into Berkeley because I hadn't been injured long enough, so I went home to New York, and I never saw Brian again after that night, but he sent me letters, typed letters, that said things like, Dear Anne, I know that we are far apart, but if we just work at it, I think we could, our love can endure, and that someday we will be able to come together. And I'm thinking, what planet is he on? I mean, how could he be writing this stuff after one horrible, terrible date that wasn't even supposed to be a date? And I feel guilty because I can't reciprocate that. But looking back, I don't feel guilty anymore. I mean, we were both really young, dealing with big injuries. He was just lonely and scared and wanted to be loved. And that urinal, Really, when you think about it and his challenges, it was pretty convenient. <laughs> As for me, I was just trying to be nice. But I think Brian thought that somehow I could save him, but I couldn't save Brian because I was still trying hard just to save me. Thank you. For this episode, folks, this is Jeremy Fisher behind me now, and this song was recommended to me by Risk Music intern Sarah Irvin. If you would like to be a Risk Music intern alerting me to songs you think I should be playing on the show, just write to Kevin at Risk Show.com. Now, we got a lot of out of town dates coming, and we need not only for you to know we're coming to town, but we need for you to pitch us your stories. You might be in these upcoming live shows. On August 29th, we are in Austin, Texas. So pitch us your stories, Austin. On September 17th, we're in Portland, Oregon. On September 18th, we're in San Francisco. And on October 17th, we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, you go to risk-show.com slash submissions and say which show you're submitting for, depending on what town you're in, and we will read those pitches and we'll let you know if we'd like for you to be in the show. 
Don't forget that Risk is also a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts, and all Maximum Fun podcasts are listener-supported. We very, very deeply, truly, madly rely on the financial contributions of those who really love and believe in what we do here. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time donation or become a member and be sure to earmark it for risk. Also, don't forget... We teach storytelling as well at our school, thestorystudio.org. There's one-on-one training I can do with you over Skype. There's also the workshops that we do in Los Angeles and New York on a regular basis. We do corporate workshops. We custom tailor workshops for business staffs. And there's even an online storytelling for business class that we have. It's all video lectures and your own workbook that you can take in your own time if you just go to thestorystudio.org. Finally, don't forget those fantastic episodes from season one and two, from 2009 through 2011, the old classic episodes. Many of them are available now on iTunes in the album section for 99 cents each, as well as our all-star episodes. They're there as well. So check out the Risk episodes that you can no longer find for free in the podcast feed. Check them out in the album section at iTunes. And now it's finally time for me to put on some clothes and cover my balls. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. chubby man covered in red fur with a penis that when it's not erect is so so minuscule <laughs> that-